This is Corey, writer and producer of the Who Killed My Mother podcast. Before you jump into this episode, I just wanted to remind you that if you visit whokilledmymother.com forward slash newsletter, you can join my mailing list. When you do, I'll send you bonus audio episodes, the autopsy report, and other freebies just for being a listener of the show. I promise it's really free and I'll never do anything weird like sell your email for Starbucks points, so check it out if free stuff is your thing. And don't forget that there are also links to three free books in the show notes of this episode, so be sure to grab those too. And even if free stuff isn't your thing, I want to thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. We are given bodies and the agency to sleep, wake, and dream. But what of the orbit? the gravity of the collapsed star in our chests. From the poem, The Theory of Us, written by me, K.B. Marie. And this is the true story of who killed my mother. Joe didn't beat my mother to death. I say this to myself on a loop in the days following the preliminary autopsy results. At least he didn't beat her. It could have been so much worse. She could have been unrecognizable. He could have buried her somewhere and said that she ran away. He could have done so many things. Of course, there is a harder, more unforgiving part of me who was quick to say, Corey, she's still dead. And if it really was an overdose, he would have known what it was when it was happening, and he just let it happen. I know this voice. She's been with me a long time. I call her hard-ass Corey. I picture this version of me in dramatic armor and eyes full of hellfire, sometimes with black wings slowing down her back. Honestly, I can't tell if she's an angel or a demon. I only know that any time the pain comes, any time I stay down too long, it's her voice that says, get up, in a tone that brooks no argument. Why am I talking about an imaginary friend? Well, because that is who I'm doing battle with right now. In the wake of my mother's death, in the face of a loss I've never suffered before, it's this hard-ass who's shown up. All armored up and demanding, she wants me to push through. She wants me to do what I always do when my heart is breaking. But the funny thing about a death is that it shakes everything loose. Even things you thought would never change begin to shift. When someone you love dies, you simply can't do what you've always done. I don't know why, but it just doesn't work anymore. This sort of loss, the kind that cuts straight through you, it stops you. It stops everything. And this is the first time I've ever wanted to fight for my grief. Hard ass is here, but I feel myself digging in, becoming obstinate. I'm demanding my right to feel this hurt. I find myself thinking things like, you took my mother, but you're not going to take this too, you bastard. And I'm not even sure who I'm mad at. My uncle? The world? Myself? All I know is that something is telling me it's not okay to grieve. It's not okay to lie here day in and day out, and whoever that is, 
whatever that is, be it the world or an actual person or even my own voices in my head, I refuse to let them take my grief and bury it with my mother. I flip through my mother's photographs, remembering hard times and good times. As I do this, I am deliberately ignoring all of the, get up, you have a business to run and books to write, hell, you have a house to clean, stop crying, you have so much work to do. It doesn't help that this hard ass has reinforcements. People don't like it when you're depressed. It makes them uncomfortable. I can see it in my wife's face when she doesn't know what to say, what to do for me. The way she tiptoes around the edge of my grief, trying to ride the waves as one minute I'm okay, and then the next I'm not. But who can blame her? I'm not any more comfortable with these feelings than she is. Hard feelings aren't comfortable. Of course, Hardass uses all of this as ammunition. See, you're making it worse. And you're stronger than this. It's not like you didn't know that this was coming. Who cares if I knew she was gonna die, I think. It doesn't make it less sad. Get. Up. No. I'm petulant as I lift another photograph from the pile and pull another tissue from the box. If your mother being murdered isn't reason enough to be sad, then I don't know what the hell is. And it isn't only her that I'm mourning. It's every hope and dream that I had for us. I used to imagine that one day I would be disgustingly rich, and that when I was, I could afford to buy my mom her own house, far away from Joe. That I could afford to take care of her, to buy her the nice things she never had, and to just improve the quality of her life. But dreams aren't all that's unraveling now. There are things I've carried all my life, coping mechanisms and reflexes, and I don't know if I want them anymore. Hard-ass Corey is great for some things. Persistence, resilience, motivation. But I've only been hard because I had to be, just to survive. And in the light of my mother's death, I'm beginning to wonder if I have to be hard anymore. What exactly do I have to be hard against? If you've ever lost anyone, whether it be death or divorce or whatever, you will know exactly what I'm talking about now. Suddenly, time feels so precious. I'm beginning to wonder why I do things, and if I really have to. The truth is, is that hard-ass hasn't always helped me. She's kept me safe. She's kept me going. But sometimes I've also pushed back against people who only want to help me. My responses to a challenge or a difficult moment can be more aggressive than it needs to be. When I don't like something, when I want to change something, I can be brutal. I can be controlling and domineering. I try to exert my will on those around me. And what has that ever gotten me? Love? Safety? Protection against the uncertainties of life? I don't think so. I think the people in my life have loved me in spite of these flaws, not because of them. And now I'm beginning to imagine a new, terrifying possibility. I could be gentle. Not only with others, but also with myself. And maybe this is long overdue. Of course, I get immediate pushback. Gentle? Are you kidding me? 
This world isn't gentle. People aren't gentle. That's gonna hurt like hell. Are you stupid? And I can't argue. The world feels far from gentle most of the time. But maybe that's the problem. Maybe we aren't as kind as we could be, because we're all armored up. We can't be gentle with the people around us, especially not with ourselves. But grief requires a gentle hand, a soft place to fall, to rest. I realize that now as I lay in my own blanket of grief, my face swollen and voice thick, I need gentle. I can't keep going like this. The only problem is I don't know how to do gentle. I wouldn't even know where to begin. My belligerent moping is interrupted by a call from the medical examiner's office. Yes, ma'am, we're calling to ask you for the details about your mother's arrangement. My mother's arrangement. Right. Because there's still the matter of her body. Oh, sorry. I begin, not sure exactly what I'm apologizing for. Uh, I didn't realize she was ready. Or... God, I sound stupid. Why do I always sound so stupid on the phone? I didn't think that it could be done before the investigation was over. Yes, ma'am, Dr. Wright took all the necessary samples. We have what we'd need. Your mother can be discharged to you at any time. We just don't have the name of the funeral home you'd like to release her to. The funeral home. You might think I'm a moron, but this is actually the first time I realize I'm going to have to make the arrangements for my mother's death. Did you have a funeral home in mind? The woman on the phone asks. No, I don't. I've never buried anyone. And I feel like it's definitely showing. Even when my two dogs passed away, the doctors took the bodies away and gave me back the ashes. I hadn't had to do anything. They just called me when it was all finished. I went to the office and they gave me the ashes, disturbingly, in a gift bag. That was it. Do you recommend a particular funeral home, or... We aren't allowed to do that, ma'am, she says, but I can send you the list of places that you could call. Do you have any idea how much a cremation costs in Tennessee, I ask. I've heard burials are ridiculously expensive, but I have no idea how much a cremation costs. Despite the hours and hours I've spent googling how to dispose of a body when writing my fiction, I've never come across anything that could help me now. I feel like this is something we should have learned in school. How to legally dispose of a body. No, ma'am, but I can include the number to social services if you want. If your mother qualifies, they can help you cover the cremation. Oh, yes, thank you. That would be great. Oh, wait, uh, one more thing. Yes, ma'am? My mother had a cross. Uh, do you, would you have that? Did, would it come in with her clothes or, uh, her personal effects? There's a pause. Let me check on that for you. Silence spreads on the line. While she's gone, I get an email alert and check it. It's the list of funeral homes as well as a number for the social services office. Then the phone clicks. Ma'am, there's no jewelry on the body when it came in. None at all, I ask, my blood icing. No, ma'am, I'm afraid not. I think again of what the detective vaguely referred to as the state of my mother's room on the morning that he found her. When I'd asked for clarification, he'd said it looked like things had been thrown around, that maybe there had been a tussle of some kind. 
This tracks with Joe's story that they'd had a disagreement about money, though it wasn't like my mother had much of value in that room. She had clothes, her TV, her bed. When Joe had called to tell me my mother passed, he'd offered to send me her belongings. There wasn't much that he could send me, the only possessions I could think of, the books that I had signed and sent to her after publishing them, the stories that were still unpublished that she'd kept for me, things I'd written while in high school, an abundance of photographs, that's it. The possibility that Joe would actually box this stuff up and send it to me was slim, but when he'd offered to do that, I'd asked him about the necklace. The necklace wasn't extravagant. I think it cost me about $150. It's not like it came from Tiffany's. But it was pretty, and she'd worn it every day because she'd been so proud of it. When I asked Joe about this on the morning of her death, telling him to please include it if he sent her things, he said rather sheepishly, I think I know where that is, then proceeded to describe it perfectly. I'll look around for it he said, as if it could be anywhere but my mother's neck, as if she'd ever taken it off. I had assumed that he wouldn't have the chance to take it off her neck since the call ended when the police arrived and he was arrested right after. So when I asked the morgue attendant to double-check if she was brought in with any jewelry, and she tells me no, again, I'm left with only one question. Did Joe wait until she stopped breathing to take it off her neck? Several calls back and forth with social services leads me to discover that my mother does qualify for a state burial. The fact that her income was only $7.95 makes this possible. So, though cumbersome, I was still grateful to fill out the lengthy application for the assistance. I'd provided all the information about her and her parents that I could recall, but there was a snag. They'd gotten her age wrong, and this holds everything up. The paperwork had to be redone. They'd been very particular about making sure it was the right body that got cremated. I did appreciate this. I wanted to receive my mom, after all, not somebody's grandpa. Yet due to this confusion, my mother's body ends up being in the cooler at the medical examiner's office for almost a month before it's finally released to the funeral home that agreed to do the cremation at the state's a fixed price. One pain point for me in all of this is the matter of my mother's disability check. Her mental condition required that she have a guardian, a responsible person who received her money on her behalf. This was my grandmother when she'd been alive, and when she died, the official caregiver had to be reassigned, which apparently they did without fanfare, putting my Uncle Joe in charge of my mother's well-being without so much as a background check. My mom told me about how they went down to the SSI office, proved who he was, and let him fill out the paperwork, and that was it. They put his name on her money, just like that. This baffles me. Why didn't anyone check his arrest record, his history of violence against her before giving him control of her money? Why hadn't someone come to the house and inspected their living situation? Surely if someone had looked closely, they would have realized it wasn't safe to give a violent addict control of his sister's money, that her housing situation was dire with the unpaid mortgage and utilities. And if someone did check... If they saw his violent history and gave him control of her money anyway, why? Why wasn't my uncle disqualified as a caregiver? A background check and home visit isn't expecting too much. 
I had to do a 10-page application with references and a home visit just to adopt my dog. I would expect at least as much care for a human life. It's true families like mine are complicated, and the system puts a lot of burden of caretaking on families who are simply not equipped or capable of that caretaking. It wasn't that I hadn't tried nearly everything to secure her well-being and happiness. It's simply that everything about my mother's psychosis and her caregiving would have destroyed me. This life that I had worked so hard to create would have fallen apart. My wife loves me, she really does, but she is not built to endure what my mother would have done to our lives. I am a resilient person. I'm even a fully functional adult most of the time. But I've managed to overcome much of my trauma for one reason. I self-care like it's an Olympic sport. I am not kidding. I spend more time on self-care in a day than Michael Phelps spends in a pool. I exercise most days. I watch how much sugar I eat because it makes my moods go too high or too low. I won't get out of bed unless I've had eight or nine hours of sleep, even if that means snoozing on and off until almost noon. I make time for friends and for reading the books I want to read, for writing and journaling and doing things I love like painting. I meditate every day for 30 minutes and I only drink water and tea and very rarely a coffee because it makes me jittery. I walk my dog. I get fresh air. It takes so much time and work just for me to take care of myself and to be a good, healthy, present person for the people I love. How in the world would I have had anything to give to my mother, let alone on a full-time basis? Healing trauma is no joke. It took me 15 years of fighting tooth and nail to get where I am today, in a place where I can take care of myself like this. We don't live in a society that allows this sort of lifestyle. I had to break a lot of rules to make this happen. I had to rearrange my career and my time. And I recognize that this is a privilege that a lot of people don't have. And it doesn't change the fact that my mother needed care. But people who need a lot of care can't get it from their broken homes. Instead of healing someone, all that will get you is two sick and miserable people. Nothing else. I'm worried this might sound a lot like lock her up in an asylum, because those are really the only sort of places I can imagine we have now for someone who needs the level of support that my mother needed. But I want to be absolutely clear. No, locking my mother away somewhere would not have helped her. Treating her like a dirty secret would have only ever ensured that she never got well again. And I know that the solutions aren't easy. We simply just don't have the mental health infrastructure that we need in America. Places and spaces for people to move away from their toxic environments, to heal their unresolved traumas, to whatever degree they're capable of. Some place where people can heal and feel free rather than confined. Supported rather than judged. I might have dreamed about the day that I would have all the money in the world to throw at this problem. To give my mother something better. But I also know it's not that easy. It hadn't been much, but hadn't I offered her my little duplex once upon a time. And I know people are trying. Changes have been made. But it's just so hard to look at all that's not been done and feel anything less than exhaustion at what still needs to be accomplished. Yet, I can hope. I can believe that one day we will build something better.
I don't know my mother's full medical record. I don't know what part of her record qualified her for disability. I've been told that she was diagnosed with manic depression by the time I was seven or eight. If you haven't heard of manic depression, it's because now we call it bipolar disorder. By today's standards, she would be classified as bipolar 1, distinguished from bipolar 2 by her extensive manic episodes. I don't know if this diagnosis was accurate. When discussing it later with a psychologist, she said it sounded more like borderline personality disorder to her when considering how fast my mother experienced a shift. And Seroquel, one of my mother's medications, is given to people with borderline personality disorder, so it's possible that my mother was re-diagnosed later, after another evaluation, and I simply wasn't updated. Regardless of which diagnosis fits better, I can think of two good examples that illustrate my mother's swings. One happened when I was 14, maybe 15. Shay, my mother's girlfriend at the time, was driving her cool green Mustang. She had the bass turned up, and the back seat was rattling. I loved it. My mother was in the passenger seat, singing along with the radio, cracking jokes. My mom could be so funny when she wanted to be. She had a fantastic, sarcastic wit that I loved. On this night, I don't remember about what, but she had us rolling. We had just had dinner, probably McDonald's or Taco Bell, something much fancier than our usual dollar store hamburger helper affair. I was in the back seat, laughing so hard I had tears in my eyes. As I looked out the window, seeing the street light streak by, I remember being happy, content. Then came the shift. In the time it took me to turn from the front and look out the window, Shay screamed, Letha, no! Letha, come on! The car jerked. I looked away from the window in time to see my mother hit Shay in the side of the head, once twice, trying to grab her hair and pull it. Two seconds ago, we were laughing. We were having a good time. But now my mother is crying with tears streaming down her face, and Shay is trying to drive with one hand while protecting her head with the other. Letha, stop! We drift across the median as the car swerves into oncoming traffic. The horns are long and loud. I swear from the back seat, now scrambling for my seatbelt, trying to find the buckle with shaking hands. I'm convinced we're going to crash. I am convinced we're going to crash, and the alarm bells in my head are yelling in a sort of mock spaceship voice, prepare for impact, as Shay slams on the brakes and the car comes to a screeching halt in the middle of the road. The car behind us whips around. More honking. Someone is swearing out the window with their middle finger in the air. I give up on trying to get my seatbelt buckled, and instead reach around the seat, trying to grab my mother and pin her with my clasped hands. At first she resists, until I say, Mom, no, stop it, just stop. And she does. She stops. She goes soft against the seat while I whisper, It's okay, Mom, it's okay, just breathe. Shay manages to get us onto the shoulder before we're killed. No one hits us. And I hold on to my mom. Even after she begins to cry harder, I pet her hair. I tell her I love her. I keep telling her, everything will be okay. Once when I was in third grade, I was in a musical. Nothing special. We were little kids and the expectations were low, which is good because despite my fat cheeks and thick wavy hair, I am no Shirley Temple. But I was really excited 
because my mom was going to come see me sing in my little costume up on the stage with everyone else. And she was so excited about it. All week she kept bringing it up, singing my songs with me, practicing with me, telling me what a good job I was doing. Her enthusiasm was contagious. All my nervousness evaporated in the deluge of her encouragement. Since we were to rehearse one more time after school before the concert began, I wouldn't see my mom again until that night. You'll be amazing, baby, she told me as she kissed my cheeks that morning before I began my walk to school. I'm going to be there and I'll be cheering the loudest. Before the show began, I stood on the stage with the other kids searching the crowd for her face, trying to find her. But I couldn't spot her in the mass of parents waving, cheering, taking their seats. And then our teacher was shuffling us into place. The lights went down. And I had to focus on not sounding like a strangled goose. When the show was over, I ran off the stage, pumped to find my mom in what I assumed would be a rain shower of praise. But as the kids chatted excitedly with their parents, as hair was ruffled and backs were rubbed, I kept searching. I weaved my way through our little cafeteria, looking up into face after face. But she wasn't there. Close to tears, I found my third grade teacher. Miss Weatherby, I can't find my mom, I told her. She took my hand. Let's go look outside, sweetie. Some of the parents are outside smoking. But my mother wasn't outside with the smokers. In fact, after all the parents cleared out, and it was almost nine o'clock, my mother still hadn't shown. The police arrived first, in front of the makeshift stage with paper mache decorations, and collected me. They tried to assure me that they were looking for my mom, not to worry, that I was safe, but I said nothing. After the police car rolled up outside our little two-bedroom trailer that we had shared with Shay, they found the house locked, the windows dark. I said nothing, standing on the porch in the cold as they broke in and let me get ready for bed. The officers in their uniforms stood large and awkward in my living room as I brushed my teeth, my hair, changed into my pajamas, throwing my book bag on the floor, homework forgotten. Then I climbed onto the couch, and I waited. As the hours passed, they kept insisting that I could go to bed, that I could sleep, but I couldn't possibly. It was almost midnight when my tummy rumbled, and one of the officers looked at me and said, Honey, did you even eat dinner? The police stayed with me until Shay got off work and could come home and be with me. But my mother was harder to track down. They did eventually find her car in a ditch, 45 miles from our home. My mother had pulled off the road and passed out. She had been drunk. Her mood had turned. The mania that I had basked in that morning had swung into depression again. Sometimes it did this on its own. Sometimes when a pill wore off or she'd begun to drink. And that's what had happened that night. As I was singing my first song on the stage with glitter on my cheeks and an oversized scrunchie in my hair. My mother had gotten behind the wheel, begun driving, trying to put as much distance between herself and her life as she could.
This episode of Who Killed My Mother was written and produced by me, Koi Marie, and the music was also written and produced by me. If you enjoy my storytelling, good news, there is a lot more of it out in the world. I have over 20 published books, including novels, illustrated poetry collections, and even this show is available as a memoir to be enjoyed by yourself or by that friend who doesn't listen to podcasts. You can learn more about my work and all that I do by visiting whokilledmymother.com. If you want to do more, you can also support me on Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash for just a few bucks a month, you'll get early access to my soon-to-be-released content, as well as exclusive content. Not to mention that your support lets me know you enjoy what I do and you want it to continue. And if you can't offer financial support at this time, that is okay. There is still so much you can do. You can subscribe to the show, leave a review of the show, or recommend the show to your friends. And I would be so grateful if you did. And last but not least, as always, thank you for listening.